and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our loved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. And the Green Majority is a platform for informed environmental dissent. And later in the show, Stefan will be interviewing Julia Levin of Environmental Defense about Canada's new climate plan. Is that correct? That's very correct. Wonderful. And we will now discuss the same. But first, I will say that various COVID vaccines are starting to be administered in several countries, including ours, the True North Strong and Free. And whatever it may be that is currently referring to itself as Mitch McConnell has finally acknowledged Donald Trump's election defeat, as Donald continues to claim otherwise, and to fire or chastise whoever agrees with at least that thin aspect of reality, and to encourage a race war on U.S. city streets with the turgidly macho and ridiculously clad Proud Boys recently ripping down and burning a Black Lives Matter flag in Washington, D.C., leading to at least four stabbings. Trump supporters are still rallying under the apparent assumption that Donald Trump must be glorified at any cost, seemingly in order to preserve white privilege and traditional gender roles. Continuing his last-minute attacks on all forms of life on this planet, Trump is cutting protections for various species at risk of extinction, which will make it more difficult for species like grizzly bears and salmon to survive climate change. There are, of course, Trump supporters still beating the apocalypse drum here in Canada, but we're not going to talk about them. Partially because this is an environment show, but more because Justin Trudeau's liberal government released an updated climate plan a week ago, and it's important to assess what our government has promised to finally begin doing to help prevent the worldwide ecological doom that has been looming for decades. The Honorable Jonathan Wilkinson, Minister of Environment and Climate Change, writes in the foreword to Canada's new climate plan, quote, It is within our reach to build back from the pandemic in a way that meets the need to address climate change and to deliver a stronger economy that thrives in a low-carbon world to the benefit of all Canadians. A healthy environment and a healthy economy is a plan that achieves both our environmental goals and our economic hopes, clean air, clean water, and long-term secure jobs. The plan acknowledges that the costs of not acting on climate change are very high indeed, and focuses on cutting energy waste, clean transport and power, pricing pollution in a way that is affordable to the average Canadian, making low-carbon products to sell to the world, and planting 2 billion trees. The plan will spend $15 billion to these ends. It will include initiatives like building retrofits, conservation efforts, electric vehicle subsidies, improving electrical grids, and reducing industrial emissions. The current carbon tax of $30 per ton will increase by $10 a year until 2022, when it will start increasing by $15 a year, eventually reaching $170 per ton by 2030. Opponents of the carbon tax often claim that it makes life more expensive for everyone, but the government has calculated that because it will be handing out carbon tax rebates to families and individuals, a large majority of Canadians will actually earn money under the plan, and everyone will be incentivized to pollute less. Canada's Supreme Court is still considering whether a federal carbon tax is constitutional, but if it is allowed to proceed, and provinces get on board with their own climate plans, Canada could end up cutting its carbon emissions from 2005 levels by as much as 40% by 2030. The carbon tax rebates, the money paid back to families, will be a little over $2,000 a year by 2030 in Ontario for a family of four, but will be almost double that in Saskatchewan, and will be over $3,200 a year in Alberta to account for the higher per capita emissions in those provinces. A sententious Doug Ford said of the carbon tax increase, quote, God bless the environment, don't get me wrong. 
even though he has done close to everything in his power to hasten environmental destruction as the Premier of Ontario, and is now arguing that a carbon tax increase is the worst thing the federal government could possibly do. The conservative environment critic Dan Albus believes that a national carbon tax is a overreach by Ottawa on an issue that should be left to the provinces, even though the conservative leader Aaron O'Toole supports the idea of having a federal plan to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Green Party leader Annamie Paul implied the federal government should be aiming for a 55% emissions reductions by 2030, and that it was hypocritical and probably stupid for the Liberals to continue investing in fracking and the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. I believe last week we covered the fact that from the government's own documents, any action on climate change would likely make the TMX pipeline not make sense. And that looking long-term in regards to the other work, even maybe Keystone XL, and, and really that all of this needs to be considered some sort of managed decline. And so the fact that this is pretty... Like man, I have such a hard time deciding because like it is both better than I thought it would be and still not enough, which I think maybe is the is the key message I'm hearing from a lot of places in the environment sector, which is like the the term that I'm hearing is historically insufficient, which I think is a very meaning that it's both historic in that like honestly, a hundred and seventy dollar price on carbon by twenty thirty is more ambitious than I kind of imagined the Liberal Party would be, but it also lacks all of the other pieces. Uh, that would make a much more attractive, I think, an interesting proposition in regards to what this kind of action could offer people in terms of a just transition and in terms of a, of a deeper change. But to you, Lauren. Uh, lobbying right now to name this episode better than I thought it'd be, but still not enough. Um, it's super, super, super encapsulates sort of feelings about this plan by and large. Um, you're going to be discussing it shortly with Julie Levin um, in, a, in really exhaustive detail. So I'm so glad that's happening because it means that I don't have to be bang on with all of my facts um, because Julie is brilliant for us. But, but yeah, basically, so this plan released last week, it's, it's, it essentially proposes, um, it's not, in, it's not new targets. They weren't, there wasn't a commitment to new targets, but basically what the government of Canada is proposing is that based on the federal actions laid out in these 64 measures at the low end, um, it will get us to, um, a 32% reduction in emissions by 2030 and at the high end of 40% reduction in emissions by 2030. Um, so if you're looking at it optimistically, you can focus on that 40% and be stoked for that. It's still insufficient in terms of Canada's fair share, but it's, it's far better than 30. Or if you're being pessimistic or angry or frustrated, you can focus on that 32% and say, wow, this whole new plan that you've put forward only buys us 2% more than what Harper's targets were. So anyways, so there's that. And then, um, and then, yeah, the fact that the majority of this plan is based on, um, I, sh I don't want to say the majority, but like, yeah, the bulk of this plan, sort of the main sort of keystone is, is this increase in carbon price to $170 per ton by 2040, I think. 2030. Be to 2030. Yeah. So, so, and, and that in and of itself is beneficial. I mean, like we've all sort of flogged the dead horse that is carbon pricing over and over and over again, but still seeing that increase is a good thing. Um, where some of my disappointment with this plan lies is obviously like you have that sort of principle when it comes to regulations and mechanism and, and policy change that you have your carrots and you have your sticks and you use them in different ways to bring about your desired change. And in this plan, we have a lot of carrots. We have a lot of incentives. We have a lot of um, benefits. We have a lot of subsidy um, in order to um, get those emissions reductions that we want to see. For instance, we have something that I, God, I can't remember the exact language, but I heard in, in a technical briefing about this um, plan last week um, that for higher carbon emitters, there's going to be a, a challenge that they issue and the challenge to 
somehow innovate or, or reduce emissions, basically. And I remember sort of messaging with a colleague being like, wow, a challenge, like what teens do on TikTok, like kind of being really frustrated at that, at the focus on carrots that we see in this. And that's not that carrots are ineffective, but that we do need to see them used in equal measure with those sticks or with those disincentives or those regulations. And that's sort of not what we're seeing as much here. It's, it's, it's a little bit too much of a focus for my taste on um, ways that the government is trying to coax change out of industry as opposed to regulating and enforcing that change, which given the timeline that we're currently on is, is kind of what we need to see. We need to see the government playing bad cop more than they currently are. Um, so what this plan reflects to me, yes, is that the government is listening to the environmental community and the scientific community, but they're still also very much listening to CAP and the oil and gas industry as well. And, and they're still being kinder to them than I think they deserve at this point. Yeah. At least $3 billion is supposed to go to big oil in some fashion through this plan. And, and more, I think, indirectly. And I, to me, I think the biggest thing that I'm missing a little bit is that there are a bunch of these sort of carrots to coax industry out, but what there lacks is a truly useful galvanizing way to talk to people. Like, like, like they, you, know, you mentioned two, I think it's, it's two million jobs they plan on making, but it's not really clear exactly how they plan to make it. And two million jobs is honestly a little too close to two billion trees for my taste in terms of do I believe you're going to do it when there's not really a dump bunch of planning here. And, and when you talk about numbers like that, you can very easily see a presumption that like, oh, look, as the carbon price increases, that will create demand for other jobs and therefore will count those as jobs we created. And it's so it feels still difficult in this manner to, to really see as myself as an ordinary Canadian to buy in. Uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, to me, I'm, we're missing the opportunity and the chance here to really galvanize this very potent youth movement around real change and give them a way to be a part of it. You know, it, it, it still seems to be a bit of a piecemeal. It still feels like, a, like it's, it's, it's doing things for each industry and trying to make them all do stuff, which, it, which ultimately might get us somewhere. But I don't think it will end up really creating that sort of larger scale change or larger scale conversation I think is necessary. And it lacks a lot of the maybe most interesting pieces. You know, lack, this plan does not explain where the, what they might want to do with, with public transit. It does not explain where these 2 million jobs are going to be. You know, it does not give us some of these other hints as to where some of the more interesting and maybe different changes might be that we're still lacking. You know, like all they had to do was also like, like if they added to this plan, if there was a true intention to say do high speed rails infrastructure, um, which would probably pay for itself given the amount of money you know, over time, or some of these other things that like are much more grandiose and interesting plans, expensive, but will pay themselves back. To me, that would let people buy in more and be a part of it more. And we're still, that is what I'm, I'm missing here. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, to that note, it's it's I think the word that sort of hits me with this is that it's underwhelming. Um, is that like when you're looking at something like transit, for instance, I think I think it's something like a like twelve percent of the reduction is gonna come from transit. And when transit makes up so much so much of Canada's emissions, I would think that we could get more than twelve percent of our reductions coming from the transportation sort of sector, I guess. And I think that's because there, there are some, there's some ZEV mandate stuff here or um, zero emissions vehicle regulations that are coming into play here. Though, though really from what I understand, the idea is that we're just going to tie our vehicle regulations to whatever the most ambitious vehicle regulations out of the States are. So, so I'm, likely California, whatever California gives us is what we're going to sort of fall in line with. But like you said, we're not getting um, larger scale mass transit um, initiatives here, which to me is where we could probably get a large number of emissions reductions. Um, so, so yeah, it's just, it's a little bit underwhelming. You're right in that it feels a little bit piecemeal, but, but you and Julia are going to dig into this. Um, what I would say is that it's, it's been a busy season for climate policy. We've got this, um, a couple of weeks ago, we got bill C12, which is the accountability policy just today when we're recording this, unfortunately, we don't have any time to talk about it, but, but we got a new hydrogen policy, um, as well. Um, it's, it's, disappointing. Um, but, uh, but that's sort of another piece of, of climate policy coming into play. So, so the government is certainly putting out a lot of material and it's really good to see the interest there. Um, but I think we still sort of are left 
feeling like not all the cards are really on the table here. We're not actually pulling on every lever and every mechanism that we possibly could be if we were truly, truly taking climate change seriously as a country. And I think that is where um, people are still disappointed. Yeah. And just to that hydrogen piece, we I do have one question with Julia at near the end about hydrogen. And basically, suffice to say is she what her fears were actualized. So you'll hear a little bit about that. And then we're hoping to have another interview uh, in the in coming weeks and a larger hydrogen conversation. But suffice to say that there was one conversation that I had Julia and you'll hear in the interview, we mentioned the fact that it hasn't been released yet. That's because the glory of pre-recording. But, uh, but yeah, well, so we will come back to that piece. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. monumental news, at least those for those of us in climate circles, you know, a new federal climate plan is one of the biggest deals that we're going to get. And so we are so lucky, I would say, to be joined by, by Julia Levin, the Climate and Energy Program Manager for Environmental Defense, to join us to talk about this and sort of the government strategy more generally. But thank you so much for joining us, Julia. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. In the first segment of the show, people have already now heard the description of the plan. So perhaps you can tell us first and foremost about what your response or, or environmental defense's more general reaction to the policy is. Yeah, so at a, at a high level, I mean, this is the first time Canada actually has a plan to get to a target that it has set. And in that sense, it, it's exciting. It's, it's, it's something that we haven't seen before. It is a, you know, a pretty robust set of policies to get us to that 2030 target, and it shows us the modeling. But that's the problem, that 2030 target, that's only half of where we know we should be if Canada were actually doing its fair share under the Paris Agreement. So that's the big, that's the big hole. So there's a, lot, there's a lot of really great parts in this plan, um, but, but there's, there's a lot that's missing because that 30% just is not sufficient. It's just not where we have a obligation to be. So where, where should we be? So if you, if you listen to the science and set targets aligned with the science, which as we're learning from COVID, our government can do um, our fair share under the Paris Agreement to keep temperatures from rising past that 1.5 degree limit is a 60% reduction based on 2005 levels by 2030. So that's twice where, the, where this plan will take us. And just a reminder, this plan, the target that this plan is set to meet was set by the previous administration. Um, we've been hearing that this government is planning to set a new target, but this is not a plan for the new target. This is the plan for the old target. Yeah, and, and interesting that they keep billing it as if they are going to try to beat that target but they could have just set themselves harder targets. You know, it is a decision that to really carry on in some ways from the Harper legacy of this particular target since he was the one who brought it in. But let's, let's start with the positives. What are the best parts of this policy? There's a lot of really great stuff in the policy. There's things like a new active transportation plan strategy that, that needs to be fleshed out. There's um, a new national adaptation plan, which also needs to be fleshed out. But that, that adaptation plan is key in ensuring that we have a justice approach to how we're dealing to adaptation to the, to the impacts of climate change, which we're experiencing and will continue to experience. Um, it also, you know, it hits on a bunch of things like from our electrifying our transportation to retrofitting our homes. It does touch on a lot of different different areas. It does leave a lot of the heavy lifting to a carbon price, which on the one hand, you know, 
economists around the world agree is the most cost-effective way to reduce our emissions. We should be putting a price on pollution. It should not be free to pollute. And I think we can all agree to that. This is a really important part of the polluter pays principle, but it will only get us so far. And that's what we're seeing. It, it gets us a significant way, amount of the way to 2030, but it's not going to get us to um, a 60% reduction by 2030. We need, we need actual uh, regulations on industry to get us to where we need to be. Yeah, so this is perhaps my read, uh, and it's be interested in your take on it, which is that the liberal government seems to be very happy or maybe focused on centering and having a more specific thought process on you know, little pieces of the project, you know, they're like, okay, we're going to give, you know, plant 2 billion trees, we will make 2 million jobs, we'll increase our carbon price. But there doesn't feel like there is a unified vision in the same way, you know, like, and maybe I'm wrong about that. But like, like, if I was going to try to pitch a climate strategy, I would go the route that in some ways that the Biden administration has or that the or the Green New Deal kind of concept, which is like, really putting front and center that this is a an effort that it will take the entire country, you know, it's moving us forward and, but it has a cultural narrative as well as these lever pieces. And it feels like they're just kind of putting in the piecemeal lever pieces without really telling the story or, or trying to gain that level of buy-in from everyone. Is that a, is, would you agree with that? Yeah, that's a very interesting take. And I definitely, I, I agree with that. I think one of the differences just the difference in level of ambition. When you talk about the Green New Deal, that's transforming our entire society and how it works. And that's what we need to be thinking. That's the scale we need to be thinking on. And Biden's $2 trillion recovery plan does does that. Doesn't maybe go all the way where a Green New Deal would take it, but it's, it's a very ambitious plan um, to transform the United States. It centers environmental racism. It centers um, some of those really key justice issues. Canada's climate plan is not that. It is a bunch of policies that will bring us to a 30% reduction. It is not transformative by any means. It's a continuation of an incremental approach to how we tackle this issue. And we we know that incrementalism is not going to get us to where we need to go. Yeah. And so we'll come back to the concept of scale because I think there's a bunch of things there. So I'll, I'll return to it. But let's first continue sort of fleshing out of the bill itself. What are the things that are really missing? Like if there are the biggest gaps that we have to fill? Yeah, I'd highlight three gaps. The first is that over 50% of Canada's emissions come from oil and gas sector and road transportation. We know, we know that what we need to do to tackle climate change, to treat it as an emergency, is to transition away from oil and gas, is to stop digging fossil fuels and stop burning fossil fuels. We know that. But nowhere in this plan does it acknowledge that what the, the most important thing that we can be doing is having having a conversation about how we how we tackle a managed decline away from oil and gas in this country. And that's a huge gap. We cannot get to our 60% emissions target without talking about the oil and gas sector, without setting sectoral limits, without talking about what needs to happen in, in the sector. And similarly for road transportation, which is a quarter of our emissions. We did see some demand side pieces ar- around electrifying transportation and mostly personal transportation, the public transportation transit part hasn't been released. There's a there. It's nodded to in the climate plan, but it hasn't been fleshed out. Um, so we see things like incentives and more charging infrastructure, but those aren't, we need supply side pieces. What we need is a mandate for electrical, for electric vehicles um, so that, that car manufacturers have to be selling EVs. We, we're missing that. Other countries have that. So a climate plan that misses 50% of our emissions is a problem. And just the third thing I'd say is really missing, and it's kind of tied to the managed decline, is just transition. A year ago, the government promised us a just transition bill and a just transition strategy, and that needs to be part of the conversation because I know that when I say managed decline, I know that's scary for folks who work in the um, oil and gas industry. I mean, I do recognize that's easy words for me to say, but those are people's lives and, and the jobs they've had for a long time. Um, so we really need to be, make sure we're centering the communities that will be most impacted by a transition. So all fossil fuel workers, but not only. And, and that's, that's kind of disappeared from the national agenda, um, which is quite discouraging. Yeah, for sure. 
So I, I actually have a question about how this might impact Albertans uh, from a from a slightly different angle because I realized I don't entirely understand all of the mechanisms that exist within the carbon pricing scheme, and because and that becomes important uh, as we discuss all the ways that people want to fearmonger about it. So, because my understanding is that the price on carbon or the tar- carbon tax that exists right now exists for any jurisdiction that does not have their own plan. And Alberta right now has its own plan, as does BC and a few others. And Alberta's plan, to my understanding, does not cover as much as the carbon tax does. But like, will, will they also have to keep raising their their own internal mechanisms to keep the price matching the federal one? Like, is, And then so, if that's the case, will the money that's, that the, the federal government that's, is taking through the carbon tax and then giving back to people, because that's you know a hundred percent of the money I understand from carbon tax goes back to people. Goes back to people. Will that only exist in the provinces that are in that scheme? Like, will Albertans not receive the price on uh, the carbon tax uh, benefit because of the fact that Alberta has its own strategy? So, so there's a bunch in that question. So, what what this this new proposal? for an increased carbon price. That's still what it is, a proposal. So when the government first introduced its carbon price, it stated that in 2022, there would be a review. This is the beginning of the review on the carbon price. And so what the government has done is it said to provinces, you know, if you don't want to take our carbon price, and there's two parts to the carbon price. There's kind of the retail carbon price, and that's the one that that I would pay on, on the emissions that I produced through driving, heating my home, et cetera. But there's also the industrial um, carbon price and they're kind of they're kind of separate. And that's one of the issues. There are some loopholes in the industrial one that exempts large emitters on some of their emissions. But for the federal government to say, yes, your carbon plan is equivalent and therefore we will recognize it. Um, th- there's a process. It's not just, I can't just put in whatever kind of lousy system I want and call it uh, equivalent to the carbon price. The federal government makes a decision whether to grant me equivalency or not on my plan. So this part of the review process, we'll, we'll be looking at that. Um, this is the new plan. How do the provincial plans who don't want to just use the federal backstop, who have their own plans, how, how will they ramp up? And then deciding if there's if those are equivalent enough, if they're up to, up to the same level as the federal one. But because the systems are, um, are tied together, Yes, Albertans will be receiving, I think it's that, like in 2030, something like $4,000 a month in rebates. And just the way folks in Ontario will receive slightly less because, because of the, how, how much we'll be paying more, we'll be paying less than people in Alberta. Their lives are still more carbon intensive than ours. But that, there's going to be a lengthy negotiation process around this. Between this and what's happening in the Supreme Court, it's going to be a, an ongoing conversation. Right, that makes sense. Yes, of course, because the Supreme Court still has not decided whether or not where this attack is actually legal. Although, that's one of the few powers very categorically within the federal government. So I would be very surprised to see that not go through. But still, obviously, ongoing conversation. So let's go back then to scale. You know, because to me, this ends up being maybe the biggest question that it faces any kind of carbon price, which it you know is or not carbon price, sorry, carbon strategy which is that it is great to have a strategy, but, you know, we are in a time now where slow action is almost as bad as no action. And so scale ends up being the most important thing. So how does this rank to other plans that exist throughout the world? Yeah, that's a really crucial question. So the climate plan that the government just announced, they've costed and all of those have been approved costs. They were approved by Parliament at $15 billion. And so on first glance, like this is a lot of money. We haven't ever invested that much money in climate action. But context is everything. So the way I will compare it to other countries is also what they're doing as part of a green recovery. Because for lots of countries, their green recovery plans from COVID are their climate investments. Like they're, they've, other countries have decided Building back better to us means investing a ton of money into the things we know will tackle the climate crisis. So in the EU, somewhere around 260 billion euros. Um, Germany had somewhere like 40 billion euros. I mentioned before, but the United States under President-elect Biden has a $2 trillion plan to, to transition the economy away from oil and gas in a way that really centers justice. 
on obviously it's a bigger economy. So for Canada, that would be the equivalent of 270 billion Canadian dollars. So like when you hear 15 billion in that context, it changes. And the um, environmental defense is part of the Green Budget Coalition, which is a group of um, dozens of environmental organizations that put together budget recommendations. Our recommendations were on the scale of uh, $50 billion, as was the Resilient Task Force, which is like a think tank recommendations. Um, so this is, while it is a significant amount of money, it really misses the mark on where we need to be. And we, we know that green investments or just they they check all the if done right they check check all the boxes in terms of you can have way more equitable um, investments if they're done in through with a green lens because they can be in every commu- community not just in certain sectors um, and they could go towards uh, social outcomes rather than just economic or just climate just on emissions basis um, the other part of the scale is I work on fossil fuel subsidies. So uh, when I was looking through the plan, two things that stuck out to me, was one was this $3 billion going to large emitters to help them decrease their emissions. That's a subsidy. We could be achieving that outcome through regulations. We do not need to be paying big polluters $3 billion, like twice as much money as what Canada just invested for clean drinking water for, pe- for Indigenous peoples across the country is going, to, is going to big corporations to help them reduce their emissions, not transition away, just reduce their emissions. And there was another 1.5 billion that's going to low carbon fuels. And while there might be some really great stuff there, um, a big chunk of that is likely going to go into uh, blue hydrogen. Um, so that's like 4.5 billion of 15, like one third that is actually going to potentially natural gas and some of it to, to oil. Like we are one third of our climate plan is going to big polluters. Yeah. And so it's hard to hear that. In, in the context of, of everything else and still be the most gung-ho about this climate plan, right? Like it's difficult to to really dig into this climate plan and leave it being like, all right, let's do this, right? Like I, I feel like personally, the thing I've waited for since I've started getting interested in environment has been the feeling like you have a government that is taking it seriously enough that then the job becomes implementation, right? Like the amount of energy currently that goes towards trying to make the plans better, trying to push people, trying to do this sort of thing versus implementation of the strategy. Like I'm still waiting for that moment where, where the work changes to okay, get this done. And, and you know, the plan is now strong enough. We have enough things. Let's get this done. And it's depressing that despite this, you know, solid increase of ambition, it still is not good enough. What is the strategy here? How do we simultaneously be like, thank you for doing something while also holding the fact that it's not good enough? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a space where I think we're all kind of finding ourselves right now. You know, we heard this announcement on Friday because it, Saturday was the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement. Um, so again, Paris, like a historic, historic commitment with all the world's countries, yet the Paris Agreement doesn't mention oil, gas, or, or coal. Um, so all of these examples of where we're getting these enormous amounts of effort and, and actually real, real commitments, but they just still fall short. Um, so as part of that three-year, uh, sorry, as part of that five-year anniversary, there was the Climate Ambition Summit. So I spent three hours listening to world leaders talk about what they're going to do in 2020, what they're going to, what now is the time to ratchet up ambition in the Paris Agreement. So they were coming up their plans. But it was three hours of uh, leaders from developing countries saying we are doing everything we can and we are still, we are dying. Our countries are disappearing. We don't have the funds so let alone let alone mitigation, we're facing loss and damage right now. And we can't do anything. Like we're, we're not creating those emissions. We need you rich countries to stop emitting and to help us out. You promised us $100 billion. You're nowhere near that. You need to, there's a moral obligation. So I think that's an important part of when we evaluate these plans. Yes, we do need to recognize that this is a huge step forwards and that we've set an important precedence, like a plan to get, I know it might sound basic, but a plan to get to a target, 
that's a new precedent. That's an important precedent to set. Now we have something we can follow, a uh, roadmap we can follow. But we can't congratulate ourselves if we are not making significant emission reductions in the short term. So th- those are those are parts of it. But at the same time, this is this is where it gets really complicated in this space in Canada. One of the one of the issues is our role as an environmental community is also just to translate what's happening to folks who don't spend their entire day <laughs> reading climate plans, um, because it can for them for people who hear this. And they, and they should, they should be happy to hear this announcement, but it might sound like job's done. We're, we're there. We've, we've hit what we need to because that's the way it's been communicated. So it's our job to also tell people what good enough looks like, and we're not there yet, um, and help people understand that. And that will help, just the information will help. Also, because we're seeing in the reaction to the carbon price, and like I said, the carbon, uh, sorry, the climate plan, a big part of the climate plan is the carbon price. And we are seeing so much misinformation, outright lies about what a carbon price will or will not do. Like the lie is that it will cost you more. It won't. It won't. Most people in the country, the vast majority of people will get more money back from the rebates than they'll actually spend. And then if you take those steps to make your life a little more less emissions intensive, then you can save more money. Become You become then a participant in, in figuring that out. But most people, even if they don't change their lifestyles at all, and I hope and I hope the conditions are in place so that we can leave less carbon intensive lives, we'll be better off. So part of the credit part of why the government wanted to put out a really, a really detailed plan, I mean, they have to to get to meet the target, but part of this now, if opposition wants to criticize this plan, then they better come up with their own plans that get get to the same emissions reductions, if not more. Obviously, we already have parties that have way more ambitious climate plans, and they are also detailed. But we have some parties that we haven't seen climate plans for. And now the only criticism can be, how else are you going to get there? If you're not, if you don't like this, how else are you going to do it? And how else are you going to go further? So those are the kind of the pieces of the conversation that that are worth engaging in. So just so we can spell it out perfectly for our for our viewers. And actually, let's presume we're not even doing it for just our viewers. Let's presume we're giving our viewers the way to explain it to their larger network, right? Because like, if they're listening to the show, they're probably already relatively on board, but they probably know some people who are not. And so if you had to give the words to these people to explain to someone who's a little defense or, or hearing like six different things about how the carbon uh, tax will impact them, how would you have them explain it in a way that is true and then also explains, you know, the merits of it and how it won't cost them any more money. What the price on pollution does, it's a way to reduce emissions that's that's kind of fair. It's across it's across all sectors. It's cost effective. It's flexible because then there's decision making that can happen under that price. What it also does is starts to like price the externalities. Like it shouldn't I think we can all understand that it shouldn't be free to pollute. The same way, like, I can't, if I go and take my garbage and just dump it all over my neighbor's lawn, I'll get a fine. So if, if you big company want, want to dump your garbage into our atmosphere, you should pay a price on that because we, we all pay on the impact side. The advantage of a carbon price, it also makes things like renewable energy much more attractive for investors. It helps level the playing field also because fossil fuel subsidies receive so many subsidies, which we also have to be phasing out. But this is part part of that phasing out and making the playing field more level. But it doesn't mean you're going to pay more because of the way the government has structured its, its carbon price. They have figured out, they've done all the math to figure out the average person in each, because there's different there's different rebates depending on where you live, what the average person would pay per ton of carbon that they emit. And then based on that, made sure that you will receive more. And a, a really smart thing that the government did this time around for the last two years has been receiving a rebate in your taxes. So you might even not know this, have not noticed that you're getting this money back because it's just part of your taxes. It's kind of automatic. And there was also complaints that that meant that people actually were pains for the first, like when you go to the, fill up your car, it does cost more. So people were saying, well, I need that money beforehand and not after I've spent it. So what they're doing now is they're going to be issuing four rebates and directly not through your taxes, just directly to you. Um, so that's a really smart and, and it's it's more just way to approach this. So you're going to get money before you've spent more. So you get this money and then you pay a little bit more 
when you fill up your your car or when you're heating your homes. So so this this whole like you're it's a tax grab. It's it's not. It's going right back to you. And and it's the only people who would be not paying more. That's kind of like the same kind of one percent. It's kind of like wealth redistribution. It's the same concept as wealth redistribution, but applied to to your emissions and the price on pollution of your emissions. So the biggest hurdle for federal climate action has always been, at least since Kyoto, the provinces, right? The, the feds can come out and say they're going to do a thousand things, but the way our constitution works, most of the power remains in the provinces. And so without some cooperation, you're a little stuck, which is exactly why, you know, the, this tax is designed the way it is. So how has the response been? They, you know, they clearly came out with pretty ambitious policies. What has been the response from the provinces? The different, obviously different responses from the different provinces, but um, from, from, the, from the provinces that have been opposed to the carbon tax since the beginning, so Ontario, Alberta, some of the Atlantic provinces, and Saskatchewan, it's been really a very disappointing response of, of disinformation and lying. So there's one thing to tackle a policy on, on its merits. There's another thing to say, like, that, uh, we have different ways that we think we should be getting there. Even, even though, you know, carbon pricing is one of the, it's a market-based tool. So it should be the tool that applies to the parts of the political spectrum that are, that are less in favor of different government approaches. But for some reason in Canada, that's just not the case and we've we've seen a really disappointing response. Like in this age of COVID and misinformation and watching what's happening in the United States, it's incumbent on our political leaders to not use, to not lie to pe- the people that voted for them, even when they're attacking an opposition party. And, and it's just been a really disappointing approach. I think it will fizzle out. I mean, what we saw in Ontario, Ford's Premier Ford has been attacking the carbon price for a while in Ontario. He had that stupid, those stupid stickers. They're gone. Like everything he tries disappears because this is, this is the economist approved approach. It's not what environmental angles are saying is the most ambitious way to get there. So it has been disappointing, of course, from the provinces that have had prices on carbon for a long time, British Columbia and, and Quebec. The approach has been one of saying yes, this is, the, this is the right thing to do. Those are those provinces are are test cases for the effectiveness of this policy, and we've gotten very very different reactions. Right in this world where we have to, you know, we're dealing with what we have. It's also, I think, somehow useful to think about what if we could change it, right? Like, what could we do to make it better? And so, if you could make a change to this plan, what would it be? Yeah, it's a tough question. There's a, there's a lot of changes that I would make if I could. Uh, I think I think we do really need to start having in Canada. I don't think I know we need to really start having a conversation about what a transition away from oil and gas looks like. Um, we are really laggards here. Denmark last week made a really exciting announcement that they're going to be transitioning away from uh, their offshore oil and gas sector all of their, their, their oil and gas, it's all offshore. And they're not going to be allowing any new permitting and they will, they will have a managed decline. There will be no more oil and gas as of 2050. That's the kind of conversation we need to be having here. And, and, and we're, we're not. And part of that is that just transition conversation. You can't have one absent the other. We need to take the lessons we learned from the coal phase out. And we're still in the middle of the coal phase out, but Alberta did just announce that um, the target was 2030. They're going to hit a coal phase out by 2023, which is really exciting. But what we did, we had, you know, there were task forces of people that went around to coal communities and talked to workers in those communities about the supports they needed. Was it job training to work in a slightly different sector? Was it early retirement support? What are the things that would that would support people throughout this process because we need to be talking about transitioning away from oil and gas. And, and even, even President-elect Biden in the debate, he said we have to transition off of oil and gas. When Trudeau said that in 2017, when he just kind of mentioned like, maybe we could have a conversation about not expanding the oil sands. He was hit hard by opposition. And, and we haven't, had that conversation yet. So I think that like we, we have to, we have to start having that. And part of that is 
carbon budgets. So what a carbon budget is, kind of like your household budget. We know we have this many emissions that we could emit in each year to get to where we need to go. So that like the budget decreases each year because you have less emissions you can emit each year in deciding what sector gets what. Because if oil gas isn't phased out, that means that all of hospitality, all of long distance transportation, all of agriculture, all of these other sectors can't emit any emissions. That means oil and gas gets the whole pie. And I don't think anyone would think that's fair for a sector. The broad public tends to think of the oil and gas sector as being this huge part of Canada's economy. And it's, it's not true. It's, 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 a, it's a narrative. It's a myth, a legend that the oil and gas lobby has really successfully perpetuated. So we need to have, start having really honest conversations. And that's missing from this climate plan. So we originally had planned this uh, in this chat interview to actually discuss the the hydrogen plan, which we had sort of presumed would be out by now. Environmentalists did send a letter out in advance of the actual release of this hydrogen strategy that the government still has not yet released. And so maybe we can just talk about that briefly. What was that letter about, and and what what do you need to see in this in this plan that they're putting forward? I will try to be brief. Hydrogen is this weird. No one, well, no one in the environmental community was talking about it. Government wasn't really talking about it. Eight months ago, COVID happened, and now there's a hydrogen hype. And it's worth understanding why there's a hydrogen hype. So basically, the oil and gas industry knows. They know that it's a sunset industry. They know that demand for oil and gas is plummeting. They are frantically looking for new markets. And one of those new markets is the so-called blue hydrogen. So you've heard more about what that is. But but from our perspective, a blue hydrogen strategy is a way to help natural gas sector limp on well past its best before date. This is, this is a gift to a sector that we need to phase out. So let me back up. The government has been working on a national hydrogen strategy, Alberta, Ontario. They're also developing provincial hydrogen strategies, which are quite similar. We saw the we saw the kind of the the draft version of it back in August, and it was it was bad. So, whereas other countries around the world are really focusing on renewable hydrogen, so that's hydrogen that comes from renewable sources, as you'll have heard, Canada's strategy doubles down on fossil fuel derived hydrogen. So we sent in we sent in comments to that draft strategy. Uh, we had we tried to meet with decision makers to talk about it. But a lot of environmentalists, that we just wanted to show that there was a unified position around hydrogen and that the only acceptable hydrogen that Canada should be supporting the production of is, is renewable hydrogen, and that any financial support to fossil hydrogen is a subsidy. And so, so the letter was really, this is a new topic. We just wanted to make sure um, that the government knows that there's a unified position from environmental organizations because they are trying to... They're trying to confuse people. Blue versus green, that only benefits the oil and gas sector. It's a tactic to confuse people. Um, It's also a newer campaign, so the government might not actually have known where a lot of environmentalists lie. So that's why we did the letter. It It was like, Canada, you have an opportunity to really put forth a really great renewable hydrogen sector that lays out the very niche applications. Because this hype, again, like we don't need hydrogen to it would be counterproductive to use hydrogen for the sectors of our economy that can be electrified, which is most of our economy, at least two thirds. Unfortunately, I did have some meetings with government folks since that letter went in. They did respond to the letter they wanted to meet, but it's looking like, and it will likely come out this week, but it's looking like it's going to just be what was in the draft, which is a really very concerning gift to the sector and also throwing in a gift to nuclear and small modular reactors, which is also very problematic. So we'll look to see what's in there, but it's not looking good. It looks like we need to keep fighting on this next year. 
Great. Yeah. So when that does come out, we'd love to have you back on to dig into that a little bit because I, it is this thing, you're right. It is one of the things that was not being talked about and now has exploded onto the scene in a way that is, you know, in some ways many, very confusing to me. Uh, but to, so to jump back to the climate strategy, you know, how can folks help get involved? How can folks, if you're, are there a camp, is there a campaign around this that you're working on? You know, if people want to support environmental defense or the general work you're doing, how can they? Folks should definitely check us out at Enviro Defense on Twitter and Instagram, environmentaldefense.ca, um, to get to get our latest takes on the climate plan and our next steps on this. Um, I always come back to like the most important thing that people are doing is is learning a bit about the issues and talking about it. We still some for some reason it's still taboo to talk about the climate crisis in Canada. That has to not be the case. Everyone's dealing with climate anxiety. If we don't talk about it, then we don't collectively figure out the ways in which we can all be part of a movement to, t- to tackle this emergency. Uh, and and this, this plan will um, be part of the conversation of, about what, what Canada brings to the, to the international um, stage next year as part of the Paris Agreement. So this is going to be like the, the discussion points for what Canada's plan internationally in, international commitment is. So it's really important in the, over the next six months that you stay tuned on these issues on where the conversation is, help fight disinformation. And if you hear someone saying it's a tax grab or that you're the, the carbon price is a tax grab or that you're going to like be losing money, just help fight that disinformation because the silence, the lack of conversation is one of the things that that's, that's a real roadblock. When as the, the lack of climate and energy literacy in this country is, is not great. And your listeners will have a great climate and energy literacy. And ha- having them help spread that knowledge is really, really important. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julie Levin, the Climate and Energy Program Manager of Environmental Defense. Always good to have you on. Looking forward to have you back on when we can chat hydrogen in more in depth. Uh, but for now, have a wonderful week. Thank you. Great to be here. Talk soon. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. What is the government?